Today it's an honor to uh, have as our kickoff to the Redemptive Edge series, uh, Mr. Sho Baraka. Sho uh, went to Tuskegee University and the University of North Texas, so that something good can come out of Texas, I guess. Uh, he studied film, anthropology, and public administration. Uh, has spent the last several decades traveling the world as a recording artist, uh, performer, and cultural curator. Has led uh, reconciliation workshops in South Africa and established artist hubs in Indonesia. I believe he's put out six albums um, as well. He founded uh, the Fourth District and the AND Campaign. In fact, when I originally talked to show, I thought he would come and talk to us about the AND Campaign, which helps churches involved in justice issues. But he had just come out with this book, and, and so we pivoted and said, let's talk about Christians in art and in the creative space. So um, we are uh, thrilled to have him uh, with us. His new book is He Saw That It Was Good. Uh, we have 20 copies back there. We have, we're selling them at less uh, cost than what we paid for them because we want to put the books in your hands. If you like the book, you know the money, just take it uh, as, as our gift uh, to you here in this church. Because I, I think just the, I mean, I read through the book this week, and the theology and the practice and the story, I think, will bless your heart. We got to know show, really, because when we planted the church 14 years ago, a woman named Kristen Adele Calhoun was in our midst, and Kristen, uh, we actually ended up uh, uh, publishing a play with her on the life of Justina Ford, who's an African-American nurse from the neighborhood here. When she came to Denver, was not allowed to practice because she was black and she was a woman. But she said, F you, to uh, our city, and delivered 7,000 babies in this neighborhood. And uh, Justina Ford is just a local hero. There's still reunions every year with the Ford babies. Uh, so we did a play on her life down at the points. Uh, and then Kristen actually introduced me to show when I was actually out at a conference in Nashville, Tennessee with Juan. And we had dinner with show and just heard his heart and saw how he thought about things. So it was just an easy thing for us to say, hey, let's re-engage and see if show would actually come out here. So he's taking time away from his wife, uh, Patrice, of 18 years and their three kids. And so we're thrilled that he's with us uh, both this morning and tonight. Tonight, I'm going to interview him in a pan, uh, uh, I'm going to just kind of interview him through his journey, uh, through his six different albums and the messages that come out of those, coinciding with the book. And there'll be a time for you to ask questions as well before we all partake of the taco truck uh, outside tonight. But let's welcome our special guest, Show Baraka. God bless you, huh? We are not of this world, amen? amen. Yeah. Then when I'm, when I'm listening to the stories of restorative justice and Charlene, Charletta, and hearing Pastor Jason, and even just some of the things that I've heard that your church is doing, this is quite indicative of a people who recognize that we don't operate in the world systems. Um, we are here to reform and to let the gospel show us how to restore all things that Jesus has dominion over. Amen. Uh, so as he said, my name is Shobaraka. Uh, I am a hip hop artist and this looks like a hip hop crowd. So I'm going to talk to you for a quick second before we get into this world word. The sun suspends in the air. I can feel his winds everywhere. 
You care to the grains of my hair, divine works all around me. I can't get past the evidence. The fact that you're invisible to me is irrelevant. I know you're heaven sent straight to the virgin birth. Gave me a second chance even after man's curse. A third, a fourth, a fifth, and a sixth. You wore my crown of thorns. You took my licks as they spit in your face. Off the cross, the sinner you embrace. Now I understand what's the meaning of grace. I war against the flesh. Can't wait to the day that you come. Because every day I'm rewriting Psalm 51. From the weak to the dumb, he makes us shine like pearls. I got a new engagement. Broke up with that girl named World. The relationship wasn't fruitful. I was Satan's pupil. They told me you was an unfair God, and I believed those lies. But I know the truth now. He's been fair since creation. Man fell, and then he gave man emancipation. I know the saying, one sin can make man fall. But with one drop of blood, he can save us all. I'm a living sacrifice. I lay my life up on the altar. I pray to have faith to not forsake you like a martyr. I have a desire. That's to know you more. I have no choice to live holy because I see the Lord. Let me pray for us. Lord, you are good. You are holy, 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 as the scriptures say. And as Isaiah saw you, he recognized that not only were you holy, he recognized that he was unholy. And as people in here who I know can relate, we are undone and we are <laughs> in need of a cleansing. And so I ask that today, let your gospel cleanse us. Let it do a good work. In spite of my inabilities, my in uh, insecurities, my shortcomings, speak through me. Let your spirit just speak through me. Uh, do work in this church, Lord, and be glorified in this word. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen. I am, um, it's just, it's, it's been a privilege since uh, I arrived. Um, me and my nephew, we came, and uh, I am, I come from Atlanta. He came from California. Uh, the hospitality has been excellent. Took us to a nice, fancy restaurant where everything was like $40 and, and whatnot. So uh, I don't know if you're stewarding your money wisely, but <laughs> praise God. <laughs> the beautiful thing about being a, a guest speaker is you get to come and you get to say all great, you know, make these grand declarations and I get to leave. <laughs> and whether or not you guys agree with them, you'll have to deal with that with Jason and the pastors and the elders. And so, but in that, I want to talk about how we are not of this, the, the, the music, the worship. First of all, let's just, I just want to praise God for the diversity that is displayed on this stage. That is not of this world. That is not how the world operates. You know, we operate in our silos and our comfort spaces, and we just, you know, create homogenous ideas of how we are to do life. And it's just a beauty to just go from language to tongue to tongue and just be a picture of acts. And this is a beautiful space. And I think that is a lot of what I want to talk about today is how this is a new kingdom that God has established. Oftentimes, though, when I hear people talk about the gospel and the kingdom of God, I get disturbed because I feel like it is utterly incomplete. I feel like oftentimes when people talk about the kingdom and they talk about the gospel, it is often from a very narrow perspective. I will try to be quick. I have a lot of stuff and um, 40 minutes to say it in. So we're going to trust God for that. Um, but Jesus' ultimate intent was to bring a new kingdom. Amen. He, was, he came because <laughs> how many of us know that there was a kingdom that was already established? And um, the reason why this is important is because the word gospel is not even 
a word that is solely exclusive to the Christian narrative. Like the idea of the gospel is a Greek term that comes because Alexander wanted to bring a gospel. His goal was to bring a kingdom to Israel. And his kingdom and his intention was to bring new forms of government, to bring new types of art and architecture, to bring a different philosophy that was already established, and to also bring sport, right? So his idea was, I am going to bless this society with a way of doing life that, that is foreign to them. And so Jesus is like, well, uh-oh, I have, a, I have an agenda as well. And what I want to do is to <laughs> reverse engineer this kingdom that, that Alexander is bringing and, and bring a new kingdom. And the reality of it is, is that this Greek context, this Greek gospel, this Greek good news, which gospel just means a good news is brought forth by a messenger, is uh, quite intoxicating. It is quite intoxicating. The world's philosophies are quite intoxicating. Charletta could have had all the reason in her heart to just be vindictive and to spite those individuals, the uh, the Jans, I'm pronouncing right? The Jans? <laughs> I don't know if it was Jans. I didn't get fancy with it. <laughs> the Jans could have been very vindictive on how they saw justice being played out. But praise God, <laughs> there's a different kingdom in which we operate. And so Jesus and his disciples are addressing this temporal limitations to the kingdoms that are being brought forth and saying, I am bringing a kingdom that is not temporal, but is eternal. And if they're saying, well, if the Greeks are bringing new government, Jesus is saying, well, I am the king of kings and lord of lords. If they're bringing art and philosophy, Jesus is saying, I am the way, the truth, and the light. I am the true beauty. If they are bringing new sport, Jesus is saying, well, guess what? I am the greatest competitor, and I have defeated death. And I offer new life. He is the ultimate answer to all good news and all kingdoms for all eternity. Um, he is the ultimate gift. And so one of the things I will attempt to do is to explain this through three different gardens. Um, and just be patient with me as I go through these different gardens. But I want to talk about God's redemptive work in perpetuity because the gospel is just not a, a message that you hear one time and then you're good for the rest of your life. The gospel message is something that is always working in us forever. And I used to sign these contracts for, for music, and you would see uh, the word uh, perpetual and perpetuity. And, and I didn't I know. I was just like, I'm just going to sign it because I just want <laughs> And then you look up, you go back, and you look up in the dictionary, and you're like, oh, that means forever. I've got to get wise. I'm going to stop signing these contracts. These are, the reality of it is, is that Jesus' work, his gospel is forever working in us. It's a perpetual, it's in perpetuity, it's, it doesn't stop. It's continued for those people who trust in the Lord. As uh, Philippians 1.6 says, it says, he has begun, he who has begun a good work in us will perfect it to the end. But oftentimes we do the gospel a disservice because we think that it starts in the New Testament. And um, as if God was trying to figure some things out for the first half of the, the narrative. And he's just like, you know what? Oh, finally, I got it. What I'll do is I'll do this. 
Um, I love fiction. I love stories. Uh, apart from being a, a hip-hop artist, I am trying to write novels. I'm trying to be a creative writer. And uh, I've also been in some films. They're bad films. Don't go watch them. Um, but the one thing that is a, a terrible thing to do as a, as a storyteller or as a reader or someone who consumes is to enter into a story in the middle. I'm sure you've watched movies and you're upset that your friend or your spouse or your relative walks in in the middle of the movie and asks you, well, so what's happening? <laughs> You'd be like, look, sis, I'm going to need you to go somewhere for a moment. <laughs> and that's what we do with the gospel. We jump in and we say, oh, tell me what the gospel is. We start in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But that is an incomplete understanding of God's narrative, of God's story. Um, I believe... Uh, like, if, if, if you understand storytelling, you know there's an, a beginning, an exposition. Uh, there's conflict that's introduced. There's rising action. There's a climax, and then there's falling action, and then there's a resolution. Um, in order for us to understand the complete narrative of scriptures, because the Bible is not an academic book. It's a story. It's a story of God. And oftentimes, we approach it like academics, and we... But we don't understand this is a love letter uh, unto his people. And so in order to understand why there's a, a conflict, we have to get to the beginning of the exposition and understand what were we created for in the first place. And when we, do, we, have, when we approach the gospel from an incomplete or from the, the middle, what I think is we get a couple things wrong. One, we miss, as some really smart folks or philosophers would say, is the ontological purpose, meaning our nature of being. We get that wrong because oftentimes what happens is, is we're only concerned with our activity, but not our being, not who we are, or not whose we are. Because when you, I can probably, I can tell you about when I was taught how to share the gospel by these different methods. The philosophy is walk up to somebody and say, have you ever sinned? Have you ever lied? Then you need Jesus. And that's fine because our actions and our behaviors need to be reformed and challenged, but the gospel starts way before understanding if we sinned, it goes back to Genesis. The other problem with this idea of an incomplete is that we weaponize it. We use it to be moral authorities in times, and this is how you put particular people in offices because you begin to use your beliefs as a way to gain power and privilege over people. The third thing... Uh, I think is um, it doesn't teach us to be proactive. It only teaches us to be reactive, to just avoid sin, avoid sin. But one of the things I love about this church is as I walk through, this is not a church about just avoiding sin. This is a church, a church about how do we become a blessing? To the, how do we become active? Kenyan theologian and philosopher John Mbidi, wise, sharp brother, says this, uh, there we go, quote is up here, so if you want to take pictures, or it's pretty long. He says, mission Christianity, which is basically the Western church, non-African-founded European churches, has come to mean many Africans, has come to mean too many Africans, simply a set of rules to be observed, promises to be expected in the next world, rhythmless hymns to be sung, <laughs> rituals to be followed, <laughs> and a few other outward things. It is a Christianity that is locked up six days a week, meeting only for two hours on Sunday, 
and perhaps once during the week. It is a Christianity which is active in a church building. The rest of the week is empty. Africans who traditionally do not know religious vacuums feel like they do not get enough religion from this type of Christianity since it does not fill up their whole life and their understanding of the universe. Basically, he's saying this Christianity is useless because all it does is it teaches me how to be a good person on Sundays. But for the rest of the week, what does this Christianity have to say about my life? I believe the story of three gardens is intended to give us an idea of humanity's relationship with God. And I want to read a few of, and, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to be in, I'm going to be in uh, three different books, and I'm going to try to uh, be fast, but I won't be reading the whole chapter. We read uh, John as a church, so I'll be jumping around. So even in John, uh, Genesis 1, it says this. It says, in the beginning, this is the first garden, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was out form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then in 28 through 31, it says, God blessed them, said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the air, and everything living creatures that crawl on the earth. And God said, here, throughout the whole earth, I am giving you as food for every seed-bearing plant, every tree with seed-bearing fruit. And to every living soul, I am giving as food every kind of green plant. And that is how it was. And this is so important. God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. That term very good is, to, is a, a blessing. It's, my name is Baraka, which Swahili folks who speak Swahili know it means to bless, to be a blessing. Uh, Barack Obama, same thing. It's, it's a different. It's Arabic. It's to bless. This is even greater. It's it's to, to bless the world. Very good. It's so good. It's going to be a blessing. So there was evening and morning and the sixth day. And so here what we have is a wonderful creation. God creates from nothing. First, we must understand that it was God. He is the, <laughs> the main character in this narrative. We are bit players. I don't know how many of you guys play like video games, but you have like the non-piece, the non-playable characters. And non-playable characters does not interrupt, that you don't interrupt the main story. We are interrupted by God. So God is the main character. From nothing, he produced life. Then the other thing what we see here is, see here is that we were created for his glory, Amen. like to reflect him. So God creates everything, then he creates us, and we are created to reflect his attributes, his beautiful uh, 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 generosity, et cetera, et cetera. But then also what you see throughout Genesis is this refrain that it is good. He creates the vegetation. It is good. He creates the land or uh, uh, the waters and the sun. It is good. And he creates human. It is good. And then he rests and it is good. And that's what we also see is that in the garden, we have rest. We Sabbath and that is holy. So to recap, in the garden, what we see here is we worship. In the garden, we create. In the garden, we bless, but then in the garden, we also rest. And it is important because the garden is a sign of life and prosperity throughout the Bible. And when there is an absence of a garden, or when God casts judgment on people and removes them from a garden, that is God's way of showing punishment. Um, uh, it, we will see other scriptures here in Jeremiah. It says, "Plant your." In Jeremiah twenty-nine, it talks about it says, "Plant your gardens and eat what they produce." In John fifteen one, it says, "I am the true vine, 
and my father is the gardener. We'll talk about this a little bit later, but we see that at a place where Jesus is crucified, there was a garden. Even in his death, there's life. But for the married people, if you're young, I want you to cover your ears in Songs of Solomon. 412, it says, you are the garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You are a spring enclosed, the seas a sealed fountain. Let my love come into his garden and taste his choice fruits. Come on, Jesus. That's a, that's a Mac line right there. That's a... And so what we see is, this is imperative to me. We see four things that I want to reiterate about the garden, and I think is <laughs> continued throughout the scriptures, is that when we talk about a relationship with God, when people talk about knowing God, they often only say Christianity is about a relationship with God. And I want to challenge that. I don't want to say it's not just about a relationship with God. It's about relationships that God has authority over. One, the relationship with him, which is most important, obviously. The relationship with ourselves and how we view ourselves, the relationship we have with one another, amen. But here's the part that I think is often missed, which I think cross uh, point, I'm sorry, cross up, cross purpose, and Providence is doing in an amazing way, is the relationship to our creation, how we work, how we, <laughs> Genesis 1, 28 through 31, subdue and multiply. So we are made for his glory to reflect him in relationship with him, with others, with ourselves, and how we work. But in comes the human problem. Satan enters the picture in, uh, in uh, uh, chapter 2 and uh, ear hustles, as some of us say. He tells Adam and Eve that, you know what? The resources in which God provided you are insufficient. The spiritual and the physical social resources that God has given you are not good enough. And the most ironic thing about this is somehow Satan convinces us, them, and still does us today, that the very thing that we were, had in abundance, we were deficient in, which is dignity and life. God provides us the ultimate dignity by having fellowship with him, and somehow Satan convinces us that's not enough. We need to be God. And so every day we, we're struggling with that, are we not? You know, for those of us who, who have very good homes, you want a better home. For those of us who have a, a car, we want just a, just a better car. If the job in which we work at is just not pleasing to us, we quit that job and or our marriages and relationship, if they don't operate in a way that then we just, I've been married actually 19 years. You took a year away from me. <laughs> and I earned that 19 years. <laughs> and every day, that is a, a very conscious effort to say, I am going to die to myself Amen. to serve this woman whom oftentimes I want to choke, but praise God, <laughs> the spirit in me is greater when the flesh is weak. Amen. We were created to worship God. He created us to glorify him. Uh, quick story, Alfred Nobel, Swedish chemist, um, invented a way to stabilize powders or explosives. And uh, he initially created it because in his day, transportation was just kind of booming and he was trying to create pathways for railroads to go through mountains. And um, 
he did that. And people saw that these explosives, these dynamite, were very useful, not only for clearing out mountains, but clearing out people. And so eventually what happened is people used this thing that he created for their own selfish intent. And eventually what happened was, there, his, as the story goes, the apocryphal story, you know, his, his brother passed away and people thought it was him who died. And so he got to see himself eulogized, which is probably a scary thing for a lot of us in the building. How do people view us if they think we're dead? And on there it said, the merchant of death. He had no intention for his creation to be used in that way, but other people used it in that manner. And see, what happens is, is that things in which God created no longer bring him glory as it once intended to, because scarcity will have us playing God and withdrawing and withholding blessings from folks those blessings belong to. One of the beautiful things about the work that I see you guys doing is that Poverty is not accidental. Poverty is caused, and it's caused because of the lack of dignity or this idea of scarcity resources, which we hoard and we keep to ourselves. And in this, and, and, and we can see that in all of the problems of the world. When you think about war, scarcity and selfishness. When you think about racism, scarcity, selfishness. When you think about gang violence, scarcity, selfishness, embezzlement, and, and cons, Selfishness, scarcity, we believe that we inherently deserve more material goods and dignity than our neighbor. And what happens is we believe the words of Satan when he says, did God really say that you can't eat from that tree in the garden? Is it not true? It is not true that you will not die. A lot of us in here may not be participating in war. Or we may not be racist, if you will. We may not be pulling off drive-bys. And so we, we, not, we may not be operating in the dark, but maybe you're not in a dark place, but maybe we're wandering in the light with our eyes closed. And how do we get away from that? The things I created is no longer bringing me glory. We make justifications to why we do things. I'm not harming anybody else or society is doing, but what happened to the holiness of God? What happened to dying to our flesh and being righteous for righteousness sake? And so what we see is with all things that were created for good intention, our relationship with God, our relationship with others, the relationship with ourselves, and the relationship in which we created, sin created this inversion, and now it is corrupted, and it is quite problematic. And we need a redemption. Amen. And so in this garden now, we lack worship. Our creativity is selfish. We don't bless, we curse. And we don't rest anymore. We don't Sabbath. We feel the more work we do, the more busy we are, the more productive. And so as the story continues, I think it's quite important that <laughs> it's good that God didn't just leave it there, amen, that Here's the exposition. We were created, created for his glory. We were created to reflect him in all good things. And then the conflict enters into the picture where there's now sin and we have a, 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 a skewed view, not only how we see God, but how we see ourselves, because we see ourselves more highly than we ought to. Not only how we see one another, because now we are not 
seeing each other in the blessing in which God created us, but we're now we're manipulating our relationships. But we also see the work and the creation we do as a way to bless ourselves. And so here we have the rise in action, and the rise in action throughout the, t- the Old Testament is God giving us ways to show that we aren't righteous enough to solve the human problem in our own power. And here we come to the New Testament, this second garden, this, this wonderful picture of a continuation of what happened in Garden Eden. The second garden is the Garden of Gethsemane. And we read a lot of it in John 17 and some in 18. There's other uh, 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 takes of this in Matthew 26 and and Mark 14. But what we'll see here is, is Jesus trying to restore the kingdom that God has always intended. And in verse one, what we see, it says, After Yeshua said these things, he looked up towards heaven and said, Father, the time has come. First, and I think it's so easy for us to look over this, he looked up to heaven. If you are a Christian in this room and when the the, the ills of the world come over you and you don't look up to heaven, then ultimately you are trusting in your own power and your own flesh and your own capabilities. And you believe that you have the answers. But then he says, glorify your son so that I may glorify you. So he's returning to the garden again. He's saying, it's not just about me. I I want to return to the original intent in which I was created to glorify you in everything in which I do. But then in verse three, we see he also returns to the garden when we (laughs) had eternal life and we violated the relationship. We entered into (laughs) a death covenant. Now he's saying in verse three, he says, And eternal life is this, to know you, the one true God, and him who sent you, Yahshua the Messiah. You shall surely die, but now you can have eternal life. In verse verse 14, we say that he's given them the word before Satan tempted us by saying, you don't have all the resources that you need. But Jesus is answering that here in verse 14. He says, I have given them the word, and the world hated them because they do not belong to the world. And just as myself do not belong to the world, I do not ask you take them out, but protect them from the evil one. Jesus, how many people know in here that Jesus has given us all the resources we need for righteousness and to live a holy life? And so in 15, this is where the work This is where the doing justice, this is where this wonderful picture of a complete gospel on this wall comes into place. He says, I I don't ask you to take them out the world. Some folks want to become a Christian and go to heaven. He says, no, I have use for you here. And so he says, I don't want you to to take them out the world. And this is actually a return to the first garden as well, where the mandate was to subdue and multiply and to be productive with God's resources. He says, Satan has corrupted the resources. What I want you to do is come and redeem and reform the things that were once corrupted. And so don't separate them from the word, but separate them by the truth from the understanding of how this kingdom is a new way to live and to listen. Send them back to be cultivators. Amen. Send them back to be creative, send them back to be engineers, to be teachers, to be people who are producing righteousness in every area of life. And then how many remember that it was no longer blessed in Genesis, it was then cursed. But here we see in verse 23 that 
Jesus changes it up. He says, I united with them and you with me so that they may be completely one. And the world thus realized that you sent me and that you have loved them just as I have loved them. He says, I want them to be blessed. The Father confirms it is good because our relationship with Jesus. This is a beautiful understanding. So now we can understand that Jesus is the redemption of all things that were corrupted in the first garden. Our relationship with God is being mended, amen? Our relationship within ourselves, we have a better understanding of who we are. That's being reformed and redeemed. Our relationship with one another is being reformed and redeemed, but also our relationship to how we work and how we create is being reformed and redeemed. I think about Jesus' interaction with the sex worker, the prostitute in the Scripture, and how the Pharisees wanted to stone her, and Jesus (laughs) has this complete gospel understanding because he just doesn't approach them and says, sister, you need to stop sleeping around. But he goes and he says, look, what's happened here is there is a disconnect between how you guys view one another. And I want to address that. So he says, he without sin cast the first stone. And so therefore, he knows that the very individuals who have a legal right to prosecute shouldn't because they exercise the same adultery that this woman is practicing. So he says, there's a, there's a problem with the justice here. There's a problem with the system, and I want to address the system. But also, I want to address the disconnect between you two. But then he also has the personal. He says, look, sis, I've addressed the system, but I need you to stop wilding out. This is a complete understanding of what it means to bring the kingdom forth. Not just say, hey, you need to stop sinning, sinning, sinning. Martin Luther King has this wonderful quote about, yes, we need more good Samaritans. We need people to to help folks who are beaten on the side of the road. But at some point, we got to say, why is so much evil happening on the road to Damascus? Or the Jericho Road, better go. And if we are just a people who are only concerned with the violence, but not the systems that create the violence, then we have an incomplete gospel. Jesus' sole agenda was to get his father's creation to worship him again, to understand why we were shaped and why we were formed and why he selected us. And humanity has done a masterful job of distracting ourselves with temporal pleasures that will never satisfy our eternal thirst. In the first garden, Satan convinced us that perfection was not enough, and we chose death. In the second garden, we find that a perfect Savior is not enough, and some will choose death. But the Garden of Gethsemane is the blueprint, I believe, to the Christian life. People try to get back to Eden, and Eden is not, it's not going to happen, folks. There's no perfection on this side of heaven. However, the Garden of Gethsemane is a perfect picture of what it looks like to be (laughs) righteous, but yet and still lay your life down in the midst of dysfunction in the midst of betrayal, in the midst of hatred for the love and service of other people. So the exposition is God created us and it was very good. 
The conflict is we determined that the resources of God that God provided were not enough, and we violated that covenant. The rise in action is God allowed chaos and death to have its way in the world, and humanity is busy trying to create solutions, and our heroes and our means are insufficient people. And the climax is, but wait, <laughs> there was one who was not only good enough to defeat chaos and death, he does defeat chaos and death. But that's not the end of the story, amen? There's a, there's a, there's a falling action, and then there's a conclusion. And the falling action is Jesus is empowering his followers to endure the chaos and death, to bring restorative or restoration to humanity. But here's the resolution. It happens in the third garden. And I pray that we are all excited. That sister stood up and she talked about heaven, singing and worshiping in heaven. In Revelation 21 and 22, we find the solution. We find a resolution, and uh, the heavenly council is like, okay, Satan has had his fun. Now it's time to put an end to this nonsense. Death and Sheol is, are, is hurled into the lake of fire. And since we ruined the first earth, <laughs> says he's going to establish a new heaven and a new earth. I'm going to read a few verses from Revelations 21 and 22, and, and, and um, hopefully just this will bless us as we're talking about the first garden, the second garden, and the third garden. It says, behold, in verse 3, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. In verse 22, it says, I, shall, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of a sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And then in 22.1, it says, then the angel showed me the river of the water of light, brightest crystals flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kind of fruits, yielding its fruits each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nation. No longer will there be any accursed but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. Amen. So I'm going to sum it up with this. In the first garden, humanity hid from God because of shame. In the second garden, Jesus had to die for humanity so that God may dwell with us. In the third garden, God will dwell with us face to face. In the first garden, God put man to sleep for productivity and worship. In the second garden, man fell asleep due to his lack of worship and concern. But Jesus says, don't worry, because in the new garden, there will be no sleep, and I will give you eternal rest. In the first garden, we were convinced we didn't need to worship. In the second garden, Jesus dies in order to establish and empower the church. 
In the third garden, there is no temple because Adonai is our temple. In the first garden, light came from the heaven and the moon. In the new garden, there is no need for the light because he will be the light we consume. In the first garden, we are promised a lot of pain and fear. In the second garden, Jesus even asked to remove the cup. But in the third garden, he will wipe away every single tear. In the first garden, we are promised death for our disobedience. In the second garden, Jesus takes on that punishment. And in the third garden, there is no death. In the first garden, there was a tree which which we had to stay away from. In the second garden, there was a tree for which our Savior died on to bring redemption. But in the third garden, there is a tree for which its leaves, it says, heals the nations. No longer will there be any curses. Blessed are those who have a right to eat from this tree of life. The good news is God is chasing us even after we ruined and we run from him. Do you know this God? Do you know this God? Revelations 22, 17 and 21 says this. I think this is amazing. He says, the spirit and the bride say, come and let the one who hears say, come and let the one who thirsts Come and let the one who desires to take the water of life without price, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. So Alfred Nobel saw himself eulogized and he was deeply distraught. But some of you guys may know, if not Alfred Nobel, you know what a Nobel Prize is. And in seeing his work misused, he said, how can I bring redemption to that which I created? And so he used his resources and his money to create funds and rewards for those people who use their intellect, not for human degradation or violence and pain, but for healing and blessing. And so now you have Nobel Prize winners. Jesus has done the same thing. Amen. He has seen us manipulate the resources in which God gave to us. And God saw his creation going wayward, but yet and still he said, I want to create a way for my people to be restored to its original intent, its original intent, and I will not create, but the the, the path of, of Jesus dying on the cross. And so now my people, Providence Church, it is a blessing and a and a privilege to know that not only is Jesus redeeming our personal relationship with God. Yes, have your quiet times, read your Bible, share your faith, but he's also changing the way we see ourselves. Do we see ourselves more highly than we ought? But also, how do we have relationship with one another? But lastly, how do we work and how do we cultivate? What are the things we do and how do we serve one another in all four areas of that? May the Lord bless you. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord bless this new kingdom that has come, and may we operate in the understanding that Jesus satisfies all our desires and all our wants and and reconciling us to himself and God in every way, not just so that we can be saved and go to heaven, but to do a good work here in the garden. Let me pray for us. Dear Lord, I thank you for you are glorious and 
you created us to have perfect relationship with you. And though we've chosen other alternatives, you gave a perfect offering so that we can know what it's like to be in relationship with you. So I pray that the conviction will rest in this room for people to know and trust you, not just so that they can have a pious life, that they can just be righteous in the eyes of people, but that they would do great work, that they would walk humbly, do justice, love you, be glorified in us. May you shine your face upon us, be gracious to us. May you look upon us, look upon us with favor and give us peace. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Let's thank Cheryl. Thank you.